When we come to the book of Deuteronomy, which will be in for these two lectures, what we arrive at is really in many ways the heart of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy summarizes and brings together everything that you've seen to this point in the Pentateuch, and then it sets the standard, and, and in many ways the, it, it provides the measuring stick by which everything after this in the Old Testament is going to be evaluated. So in this way, Deuteronomy, it, uh, summarizing everything that goes before and then setting the standard for everything that comes after, it, it's really sort of the heart of the Old Testament. And the book of Deuteronomy can be divided into, broadly speaking, three parts. So the first 11 chapters of Deuteronomy are like a motivational history, uh, motivating Israel to keep the law. And then the law by which Israel is to live and which they are to keep, what, they're, what they've been motivated to keep in the first 11 chapter, chapters, that law is set out for them in chapters 12 through 28. And then in, in the concluding chapters in Deuteronomy 29 through 34, what, what we have is Moses' last will and testament. It is Moses' farewell to, to Israel and it is the moment when he is taking leave of Israel and, and forecasting for Israel what they can expect about their future. So the book of Deuteronomy falls into these three parts, motivational history and then the stipulations of the covenant and then Moses' farewell address. And I, I would also say that, that uh, there's a sense in which the, the Ten Commandments, which are represented in Deuteronomy chapter 5, form a kind of, of, of structural format for the whole book. So once the Ten Commandments are presented in Deuteronomy chapter 5, it's almost as though they're elaborated upon in very discrete sections of the rest of Deuteronomy. So the first commandment that Israel is to have no other gods before Yahweh, this really is, is elaborated upon and, and Israel is taught the implications of this in chapters 6 through 11. And we can, we can think of the famous statement of the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and so forth. This is kind of a reformulation of the first commandment, don't have any other gods before me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and He, he is one. and and then the text goes on this way, really elaborating upon it, how Israel is to uh, have no other gods before Yahweh. And then the second commandment, uh, you shall have no idols, you shall not make any carved image. This is, in many ways, uh, it, it receives extended treatment as the, the stipulations for Israel's worship are set out in Deuteronomy chapters 12 and 13. Those chapters deal with both the, 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 the one place to which Israel is, is to go in order to worship Yahweh, the place where he is going to choose to set his name, that's Deuteronomy 12. And then Deuteronomy 13 teaches Israel how to respond to false gods and those who would lead them astray to the worship of, of idols. And so this second commandment, you shall not make any carved image, this is really elaborated upon in, in Deuteronomy 12 and 13. The third commandment, uh, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. This is, is uh, treated more fully 
in Deuteronomy chapters 13 and 14 as issues of holiness are dealt with. And, and, and so they're to, they're to keep the name holy, they're not to take it in vain, and, and this has implications for other aspects of their, life, their lives also. They're to be holy to the Lord. The, the, the fourth commandment about the Sabbath, it, it, it institutes a periodic observation, a, a, a weekly period of rest on the seventh day. And, and this is not the only periodic duty that Israel has to worship the Lord. So there are other things like these three feasts that Israel is to go up every year to Jerusalem to celebrate these three feasts and, and there, are, there are regulations about what they're to do on the seventh year, regulations about what they're to do on the 49th year, uh, and the, these all have to do with the calendar. And, and so the, the commandment on the Sabbath is uh, exposited in the, the, the statements about how and when Israel is to worship in Deuteronomy 14 through 16 as their periodic duties are set forth and explained. Now, what, what I'm, what I'm uh, suggesting, and, and, and really I'm not alone here, I'm just following a lot of scholars who say these kinds of things, what, what is being said is that it's almost as though each of the Ten Commandments is like a, a section heading. And you can envision maybe a series of, of tabs in your Mozilla Firefox browser. You, you click on this tab and it opens up a page and there's a lot, of, lot more information on that page. Or maybe like a drop-down menu. You, you click on the, the, the heading for the drop-down menu and it brings up a whole uh, list of options. And, and that's sort of the way that these, these commandments work. So for instance, the fifth commandment, which, which Israel is commanded to honor your father and mother, it's really sort of a, a heading or like a drop-down menu that, that says, um, respect the people who are in authority over you. And, and we see this also developed in Deuteronomy chapter 16, starting in verse 18 and continuing through uh, chapter 18, so Deuteronomy 16 through 18 uh, deals with the judges in Israel and what the king's responsibilities are and what the king is not to do, and then uh, the priests. And, and, and also there are statements in Deuteronomy 18 about the prophet that the Lord is going to raise up for Israel. So these all have to do with authority figures, and, and in many ways these statements about authority figures, judges, kings, priests, prophets, these are implications of the command to honor your father and mother. Uh, similarly, uh, the sixth commandment, you shall not commit murder or you shall not kill, this is elaborated upon in Deuteronomy chapters 19 through 22 which deal with the way that Israel is to relate uh, to, to those who are killed, whether by manslaughter or by intentional murder, and, and other, other aspects of the law that's going to regulate uh, punishments and, and crimes against other people. These kinds of things are developed in Deuteronomy chapters 19 through 22. Uh, the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, has wider implications than just adultery. And in Deuteronomy 22 and 23, you get a whole set of regulations that are meant to, to provide the boundaries of what is acceptable when it comes to the topic of sexual behavior in Israel. All that is laid out uh, more fully in Deuteronomy 22 and 23. We can also observe in a, 
in, in thinking of a topic like this that these are not exhaustive statements. In other words, every possible circumstance that could come up is not addressed in the book of Deuteronomy. And so the, the way that early interpreters, and I think rightly, and, 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 and later interpreters, everyone pretty much agrees here, basically what we have in, in Deuteronomy serves as a kind of, of, of pointer in the direction that things are to go. And, the, and if, so if an issue is not explicitly addressed, th what we're called on to do, if we're, if we're under the law of Deuteronomy, if we're in Old Testament Israel, under, under the Old Covenant, what we're called to do is know the, 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 the framework and the direction in which the laws point, and then we're to apply the law to these issues that may not be addressed in the law. The Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. This receives elaboration in Deuteronomy chapters uh, 23, and 20, 23 through 25, where you have various regulations on property and how you're to treat others' property and how you're to uh, deal with your own property. And, and, and so this is sort of an elaboration upon the commandment not to steal. The Ninth Commandment, you shall not bear false witness, seems to be elaborated upon, exposited in Deuteronomy chapters 24 and 25, which deal with the matter of truthfulness and speaking the truth and, and uh, uh, bearing true, genuine witness. And then the, the question of uh, the Tenth Commandment, uh, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife and so forth. This seems to be connected to the treatment in Deuteronomy 25 of leveret marriage. And if you, if you say, well, how in the world is leveret marriage connected to the command not to covet, the connection seems to be found in the fact that if you're going to uh, rightly carry out this practice of leveret marriage, it's going to be an expression of an unselfish willingness to raise up seed for the one who has died. And, and coveting is really the opposite of this. Coveting is selfishness and then being willing to raise up seed for the one who has died. This is an expression of unselfishness because, because as you see in the book of Ruth, when you do this, you, you, you invite questions that could endanger your own inheritance. And so in this leveret marriage, you're really setting aside your own concerns and you're being concerned for the one who has died. You're, you're raising up seed for the one who has died. So that's, that's kind of an overview uh, at a broad level of the, of the book of Deuteronomy. And I, I do think that the, that the Ten Commandments laid out in Deuteronomy 5 provide a kind of template for the, the exposition of the laws, the development of the laws that, that comes in the rest of the book. And there are also, there are also these clear statements in Deuteronomy that seem to function as structural markers. So if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 1, we read the words, these are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan. And then if you look at Deuteronomy 4:44, you find a similar straight statement. This is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 1, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me and so forth. Deuteronomy chapter 12 verse 1, these are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do. And then Deuteronomy uh, 29, 1, we have another one of these where we read, these are the words of the covenant that 
the Lord commanded Moses. And then Deuteronomy 33, verse 1, this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. So these statements, they track with the divisions that I su suggested earlier and also provide just a few more uh, divisions of the book and, and, and uh, that, that doesn't need to detain us. We could, we could go into more, a more elaborate, detailed outline, but we don't need to do that. What we have in the first three chapters of Deuteronomy is a sort of history of Israel from Mount Sinai when they're commanded to leave Mount Sinai to uh, the day when Moses actually delivers the content of Deuteronomy to Israel. When he uh, spoke these words, Deuteronomy 1.1, to all Israel beyond the Jordan. So the book claims to be the, the content of what Moses spoke to Israel on the plains of Moab, now that they have uh, departed from Sinai, passed through the wilderness, a whole generation has died in the wilderness, and now they've arrived at the plains of Moab, Moses is not going to be allowed to go into the land. And so there on the plains of Moab, he addresses the nation, and what he gives to them in chapters 1 through 11 is a motivational history. Then in chapters 12 through 28, he gives them the stipulations of the covenant, and then essentially he says, says goodbye to them. And, and gives final warnings and promises of blessing if, if they obey in chapters 29 through 34. What I uh, want to highlight here is in, in Deuteronomy 1 through 3, uh, Moses really prepares Israel for crossing the Jordan and, and, and going into the land of Canaan and facing the nations that they're going to confront there. And the way that he prepares them for the battles that they will face when they go into the land of Canaan is by reminding them of, the, of, their, of their conquest of Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan. And, and we, we come to that in Deuteronomy chapter 2 and, and, and the beginning of chapter 3, but actually even before that, he is also preparing them for the conquest of Canaan by reminding them of their previous refusal to go up and take the land because of the bad report given by the spies. And so it's almost as though just before they, they go into the land, Moses says to them, remember what happened the last time we spent, sent spies into the land. Remember the way that they brought back a bad report and you all refused to go into the land. Don't, and, and, and look at what's happened. A whole generation has died in the wilderness. Don't repeat that mistake. We now have an, another opportunity to go into this land and take this land. And, and as we go in, we must trust the Lord and obey Him. So look at what Moses says to them. This is in response to their refusal to go up. He's recounting that story of, of the spy's bad report. And, and he says to them in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 29 and 30, I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. Yahweh your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. So as they prepare to go into the land, Moses rehearses this earlier refusal, and he rehearses what he said at that time. It's the Lord who's going to fight for you. The Lord who defeated Egypt and brought you out of slavery, He is going to fight against these nations. And so Moses reiterates these, uh, these comments and these events in order to prepare 
Israel for their, their new taking of the land once he finishes delivering the content of the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, then as they, as they came up toward the land, uh, look at what we find in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 24. Israel is commanded, Rise up, set out your, on your journey, and go over the valley of the Arnon. Behold, I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. The Lord says through Moses, Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. This day, the Lord says to Israel, I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on all the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. So this is the encouragement that, that the Lord, through Moses, gives to Israel. The Lord is going to cause these other nations to fear Israel. And this is exactly what we see over in the book of Joshua. When uh, we get to the book of Joshua, um, we're told both in Joshua 2 and in Joshua 5 that all the inhabitants of the land uh, the, the fear of Israel has come upon them and their hearts have melted with them, within them. And they've heard the report, just as Moses says to Israel from the Lord here. They've heard the report of what the Lord has done for Israel against Egypt. So they defeat Sihon, the king of Heshbon. And notice how in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 30, uh, the Lord hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate. So the Lord did this, did this to Pharaoh. He hardened Pharaoh's heart and then defeated him. And now he's hardened Sihon's heart and he's going to defeat him. And then over in Joshua, we'll, we'll read that the Lord has hardened all the hearts of the kings of Canaan and Israel has defeated them. And then they defeat this guy Og, the king of Bashan. And it's interesting, over in Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 11, we read that only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length, and four cubits its breadth, according to the common cubit. I think this is a bed that's about 13 feet long and seven feet wide. It's a huge bed. And so uh, this guy, Og, the king of Bashan, he seems to be a descendant of these giants that Israel feared the first time they sought to take the land when, when the spies came back and said, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. And now they defeat this massive king, Og, the king of Bashan. And the idea is uh, no, no one of, uh, it, it doesn't matter what the size of the enemies of Israel is. It doesn't matter how numerous they are. It doesn't matter how mighty they are. The Lord has given victory to Israel. Uh, and then Moses recounts how he was forbidden to enter the land. And that, that really brings the story up to the place at which, at which Israel now finds itself there on the plains of Moab. And in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses teaches Israel how special they are in God's purposes. So what Moses wants Israel to recognize is what a unique privilege they have to be the people of God, to be those to whom God has, excuse me, revealed himself, uh, and to be those uh, to whom God has given this law that Moses is teaching Israel in this book of Deuteronomy. So we pick this up in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 1, and Moses says, 
And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them, that you may live, and go in and take possession of the land that Yahweh, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of Yahweh your God, that I command you. Your eyes have seen what Yahweh did at Baal Peor, uh, when, when Balaam gave that advice that resulted in Israel's sin and the Lord judged them. You, you remember the acts of judgment in the past? For Yahweh, in verse 3 here, your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. So don't think that you're going to follow some idol and get away with it. The Lord has already judged this in the past. But you who held fast to Yahweh your God are all alive today. And now Moses moves to the unique glorious character of the law. He says in verse 5, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as Yahweh my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. I think that there is a strong connection between what Moses says there and what we later read in the book of Proverbs. In the book of Proverbs, wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And what the fear of the Lord results in and produces is this approach to life that says, what regulates my behavior is my knowledge that God sees everything that I do. He knows my thoughts. He knows where I go. There's no hiding my actions from Him. I am always before Him. I live before Him. And because I know He's just, and because I know he'll keep his word, I fear his judgment, and that keeps me on the path of righteousness. That keeps me turning back to his word. And, and Proverbs again and again uh, talks about how uh, the, the, the father addresses the child in Proverbs saying, my son, keep my teaching. And, and the word that's translated teaching in Proverbs is often Torah. And, 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 and the father will say to the son in Proverbs, my son, do not forsake the teaching of your mother. And in Deuteronomy 6, what do we read? We read that the, the parents in Israel are to teach these things to their sons. And so they're, they're to teach the, the law to their children. And then in Proverbs, there are these calls, don't forsake my teaching, which is the Torah. And so... Um, uh, wisdom for an Israelite is going to be this, this recognition, God sees all I do, and the Bible gives me the path of life. So, so I want to fear God and trust Him and believe His Word and, and embrace it. And that's exactly what we see here when, when Moses says to Israel, um, if you do these things, it will, be wis it will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, these laws that Moses is giving them, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Not because there's anything uniquely brilliant about Israel, but because the laws that regulate their lives are so true and right and good. So it's the law that's going to produce this reputation of Israel's. In verse 7, the peoples will say, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it I'm sorry, this is not the people saying, this is Moses saying this. What great nation, nation is there that has a God so near to it as Yahweh our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? 
Notice how Moses is inviting Israel to compare themselves with other nations. And notice how he's calling Israel to recognize that no other nation has a God near to it the way that Yahweh is near to Israel. It's, this is interesting because sometimes people suggest that if uh, the biblical authors, if Moses and John and Luke and Paul had known how many people there are out there who have never heard excuse me, who have never heard the gospel, if they had known how many people have never heard the gospel, they would never have made the exclusive statements that they make. But clearly here, Moses knows there are other people to whom God has not revealed Himself. He knows this. He calls on Israel to recognize it. And he, he's not presenting it as some sort of ethical problem or moral, emotional kind of dilemma that Israel is to reckon with. He's presenting it as a reason for Israel to heed the law. So Israel should listen to the law because they've been shown such mercy, a mercy that God has not given to all other peoples. No, no other nation has a God so near it as Yahweh is near to Israel. No other nation has a God so near it as Yahweh is to Israel whenever they call upon Him. So Israel res should respond to this by keeping the law, heeding it. Verse 8, Moses asks, What great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Look around. Compare what they have. It's not as good as what you have. So recognize God's kindness to you and, and, and do the law. So verse 9, Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. How on the day that you stood before Yahweh your God at Horeb, Yahweh said to me, Gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. And then he recounts what happened there at Sinai. They came near and the mountain was wrapped in gloom and smoke. And look at verse 12, Yahweh spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. This phrase, Yahweh speaking out of the midst of the fire, is going to be used again and again here in Deuteronomy. And it's used to describe the way that the fire descended on Mount Sinai and then Lord, the Lord spoke the Ten Commandments to Israel out of the midst of the fire. So there in verse 12 of Deuteronomy 4, Yahweh spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. So the idea is, this is the reason you're not to make an image. You're not to make an image because Yahweh didn't show you what He looks like. You, you, you saw no form. There was only a voice that you heard. So, so you don't make any carved image of Yahweh because there's nothing that can adequately represent all that He is. And, and then Moses recounts how He declared to you His covenant, which He commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And He wrote them on two tablets of stone. And Yahweh commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you were going over to possess. Uh, and then, and then there's, there, there's this very interesting statement in verse 19 of Deuteronomy 4 that indicates um, what a unique role Israel plays in God's purposes. So in Deuteronomy 4.19, Moses says to Israel, Beware, 
lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that your Yahweh your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Now that's a very interesting statement. That seems to indicate that the Lord has allotted these other objects of worship to all these other nations. I think this is related to what Paul says over in Acts when, when he speaks of the way that, that formerly God allowed all the nations to go their own way. Uh, so, um, um, and, and, then, and then he says in, in, in Acts 17 verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And so it's as though in former times, uh, God allowed these other nations to go worship whatever they wanted to worship, and he allotted these objects of worship uh, to these other nations. But now that the gospel has come, now that Christ has come, and now that uh, the Spirit has been poured out and Jesus has ascended to heaven, now that these things, things have taken place and the gospel is going to all nations, God is commanding all men everywhere to repent. But that's not the way things are in Moses' day. In Moses' day, God has allotted these other objects of worship to the nations. Look at verse 20 of Deuteronomy 4. But Yahweh has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. So Moses says, look around you. God has given to all these other nations these objects of worship, but he's taken you to be a people to himself. These same ideas are articulated over in Deuteronomy 29, verse 26, where again we read uh, that, uh, um, well, this time Israel has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they had not known, whom he had not allotted to them. God didn't allot these false gods to Israel. He took Israel to be his own possession. And uh, then, then there's this, this statement in Deuteronomy 4.24, which is really Moses' response to the fire that came down on the mountain, mountaintop. Moses says, Yahweh your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. So, so these are reasons you should obey Israel. You should obey the law because the Lord is a jealous God, a consuming fire, just as you saw him on the mountaintop. And then th th this, this next passage here in Deuteronomy 4, beginning in verse 25, continuing through verse 31, is a most remarkable passage. This passage is, is programmatic for the rest of the Old Testament. It's, it's much like Leviticus chapter 26, which we looked at in an earlier lecture, and we saw there that, that essentially the Lord is, is prophesying the future of the history of Israel, and, and we see it here also. Moses is, in essence, warning Israel what's going to happen when they enter the land, and he's, he's presenting it as, as though he's saying to them, when you enter the land, don't let this happen. But then it's almost as though it shifts to, you enter the land, don't let this happen, but when it does. When this happens, this is what's going to happen after that. So look at Deuteronomy 4.25. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, 
if you act corruptly, and here it's a clear warning, don't, don't do this, don't act corruptly. But if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, Moses says in verse 26 of Deuteronomy 4, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. So the witnesses to the covenant that Israel is not to break is heaven and earth. This informs the opening words of Isaiah's prophecy when he says, Hear, O heavens and earth. It, Isaiah is calling the, the witnesses of the covenant to testify against Israel. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2, Hear, O heavens, heavens, and give ear, O earth. And then Isaiah begins to denounce the sin of the people. So Moses summons heaven and earth as a witness to the covenant, and he says, verse 25, If you act corruptly and make a carved image and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, I call heaven and earth to witness, in the middle of verse 26, that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. Well, what's that going to look like, Moses? What's it going to look like for Israel to perish from the land? Verse 27, And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. So you go into the land, you make a carved image, you commit idolatry, the Lord is going to drive you out of the land. You're going to be sent into exile where among the other nations you'll commit idolatry. You, you want to be an idolater? Fine. I'll, I'll drive you out of the Holy Land and you can go live among the nations and commit idolatry with them. Now this is really the future of Israel. This is what's coming on them. This is exactly what they do. They, but before they even leave Sinai, they already make a golden calf, so they're already pointed in that direction. They, they get into the land. Uh, Solomon worships other gods because his wives turn his heart away. And then Solomon's son Rehoboam is a fool, and, and, he, and he answers the people harshly, in response to which ten of the tribes break away and take this guy Jeroboam as their king. And then what Jeroboam does is he makes up his own man-made, self-invented religion. And he makes a golden calf that he puts in Dan, and he makes a golden calf that he puts in Beersheba. And, and he makes Israel sin with these things. So they make a carved image, they worship it, they do evil in the eyes of the Lord, and then the Lord exiles them. The northern kingdom is exiled first, and then uh, a century or so later, the southern kingdom is exiled. Um, century and a half later, 721 B.C., 586 B.C., northern kingdom, southern kingdom, driven out of the land, driven into exile. And then exactly this happens. They go into exile, and look at what the Lord says in Deuteronomy 4.29. But from there you will seek Yahweh your God. Now before we read on, let's just pause and think about what happens when they go into exile. M remember that guys like Daniel and Ezekiel get exiled. And you remember what Daniel does. Daniel seeks the Lord his God. His windows are open to Jerusalem. He's praying in the direction of Jerusalem. He's seeking the Lord his God. And the Lord hears him. 
and, and sends the angel Gabriel and gives Daniel visions about the restoration of Israel. And, and then, interestingly, the, the, you know, the texts don't make this connection explicitly, but, but Daniel is in um, Babylon in 539 B.C., serving the rulers of Babylon, Belshazzar, when Cyrus the Persian and Darius the Mede come against Babylon and conquer it. And what's the first thing that Cyrus the Persian does? He issues this decree that, that any Jew that wants to return to the Promised Land can go. And, and in the book of Daniel, uh, Daniel uh, became an advisor to Darius the Mede, which um, puts him in connection, probably at least, with Cyrus the Persian. And so I wouldn't be surprised at all if Daniel didn't have something to do with, with this decree issued by Cyrus that uh, those Israelites who want to return to the land can do so. And, and all that is, is, I think, being essentially prophesied by means of a warning, a warning that's in essence a prophecy here in Deuteronomy 4. But from there you will seek Yahweh your God and you will find Him if you search after Him with all your heart. It's not only Daniel that, that this is a, a significant statement for. It's also Jeremiah. You remember that Jeremiah was prophesying in Jerusalem around the, the time of the fall of, of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., before and during and after that he was in Jerusalem prophesying. And at one point in Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah actually sends a letter to those who have already been exiled to Babylon. And in that letter, Jeremiah quotes Deuteronomy 4.29. So if you want to look over at, at Jeremiah 29, we read in this statement, Jeremiah 29, uh, we'll pick this in, up in verse 10. Jeremiah is writing this letter to the exiles in Babylon, and he says, Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. So the exile is going to last 70 years. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Jeremiah is in Jerusalem, and he's saying, After 70 years for Babylon, I'm going to bring you back. Verse 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. This is in contrast with what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 29, 21, verse 10, where Jeremiah says to those who are in Jerusalem, he says to them that the Lord says in Jeremiah 21, 10, I have set my face against this city for harm and not for good, declares the Lord. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon and he shall burn it with fire. So that's before the, the city is burned and that's what takes place. And then Jeremiah later writes, to the exiles in Babylon, and basically it's the opposite for them. The Lord uh, has plans for them, plans for good and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then verse 12, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. Verse 13, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. This is the exact language of Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 29, where Moses has prophesied, if you go into the land and you commit, commit idolatry, I'm going to scatter you among the nations. But from there you will seek Yahweh your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. So on the basis of what Moses prophesied, Jeremiah can assure those exiles 
If you'll seek the Lord, you'll find him. And then look at Deuteronomy 4.30. Now notice how up to this point, we've got verse 25, if you act corruptly by making a carved image, then this will happen. And then look at verse 30. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to Yahweh your God and obey his voice. We've moved from if you go into the land to commit and, and commit idolatry to when these things happen to you and you're in affliction, you will return to Yahweh your God and obey his voice. Verse 31, for Yahweh your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. So Moses is assuring Israel uh, that, that their future is secure. Through the judgment of exile, in spite of their idolatry that's going to lead to the exile, in the latter days, the Lord is going to restore them. And, and they're going to seek the Lord, and, and, the, and they will find Him when they seek for Him with all their hearts. So there's the, there's the future, the history of the future of Israel there in Deuteronomy 4, 25 through 31. That passage, which sets up this, this uh, schema or this pattern of, of sin, exile, and restoration. That passage is programmatic for the rest of the Old Testament. If you want to boil down the message of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve, and, and I know that, that oftentimes Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the Twelve seems very complicated, seems very complex, and the, the prophets are many times doing bizarre things. But, but if you want to just boil down their message to its essence, what they're basically saying is this. We've sinned, and if we don't repent, we're going into exile. So repent, please. But you're not going to repent. So we're going into exile, and God's going to judge us. But beyond exile, beyond destruction, there is this glorious future that God has planned for us. And, and let me tell you what that future is going to look like. So the prophets are basically saying it's going to be sin, exile, restoration. And, then, and I think that we can take their promises of restoration and we can build sort of a composite picture of, of what the restoration is going to look like. And, and, and I don't think, for instance, that if you had asked Isaiah, who gives a picture of that restoration in Isaiah 2, 1 through 4, where he talks about how Jerusalem is going to be exalted as the highest of the mountains and the nations are going to stream up to Zion to learn the law of the Lord. If you had asked him, Isaiah, are you talking about the same thing that Joel is talking about over in Joel 2, chapters, chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, where he talks about how the Spirit is going to be poured out on all flesh? I think Isaiah would say, absolutely, we're talking about the same thing. Didn't you read my 32nd chapter where I said, Isaiah 32, a king is going to reign in verse 1, and then like verse 15, the Spirit is going to be poured out on the people. So, so yeah, the, the outpouring of the Spirit is a feature of this glorious eschatological future of Israel. Moses is trying to get them to, trying to motivate Israel to obey the law so that they won't be exiled, but he, it's as though he knows that they're going to do that. We come to chapter 5. And in Deuteronomy chapter 5, um, the Ten Commandments are restated. 
They're, they're first given in Exodus 20, now they're restated here in Deuteronomy 5. And after they are recounted, look down at Deuteronomy 5:22. Moses writes these words, Yahweh spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire. So that's Moses' account of what happened, where they heard these words. The Lord came down and He said these things to Israel out of the midst of the fire the cloud and the thick darkness with a loud voice. And he added no more. And then look at verse 24. And you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us if we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore. We shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and still lived? Go near and hear all that Yahweh our God will say and speak to us all that Yahweh our God will speak to you and we will hear and do it. So the people recognize, look, if he keeps talking to us, it's going to kill us. It's going to consume us. So Moses, you go up, you get the mountain, bring it back to us, we'll obey. And the Lord agrees. Verse 28, the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Verse 29, this is a very important statement in Old Testament theology and biblical theology. Deuteronomy 5:29. the Lord says, Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. This is important for a, a number of reasons. First, uh, this, this translation, oh, that they had such a heart as this always, you could literally render this, who will give them such a heart as this always? And then as you continue through the book of Deuteronomy, um, eventually you get to chapter 30 where the Lord says, that he is going to circumcise the hearts of Israel. And, and you get over to Ezekiel, and Ezekiel talks about how the Lord is going to remove their heart of, flat, of stone and, and give them a heart of flesh. And, so, and, and, and you get similar statements in the book of, of Jeremiah. And so I think that Moses and Ezekiel and Jeremiah would answer this question, who will give them such a heart as this always? The answer is going to be the Lord. The Lord's going to give them this heart. But that implies the second thing that's interesting about this, and that is that they clearly don't have the necessary heart. They've responded appropriately in this moment when the Lord has spoken the Ten Commandments to them. But the Lord is saying, you don't have the heart you need. You don't have it. And, and, and you need it. And... Um, and as you continue through the book of Deuteronomy, the remedy for this is really stated in chapter 6, verse 6, where, we, where we, we read, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So, 529, who will give them such a heart as this always? 6-6, six, six, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So, they're to put the word there on their heart. Remember what 
Jeremiah 31 says in the New Covenant passage, the Lord is going to write the law on their heart. So there's a sense, I think, here in which Israel is being called to do something that only the Lord can do for them. We see this also in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, where, where Moses gives them this command, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. So put the law on your heart, circumcise your heart, and, and there's a clear recognition that they can't do this. They can't do it, and they need the Lord to do it for them. And, and that comes over in Deuteronomy chapter 29, where in verse 4 we read, But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand, or eyes to see, or ears to hear. So, so who, who, Deuteronomy 5.29, who will give them a heart such as this always? Deuteronomy 6.4, these words I'm commanding you shall be on your heart. Deuteronomy 10.16, circumcise your heart. Deuteronomy 29.4, down to this very day the Lord hasn't given you the heart you need. And then as you continue through Deuteronomy 29, essentially that same pattern that we saw back in Deuteronomy 4, 25 through 31, you're going to sin, you're going to be exiled, you're going to be restored. That same pattern is worked out in Deuteronomy 29. We might look at that in more detail in the next lecture. And then eventually you get over to chapter 30, where in verse 6 we read, and Yahweh your God, in the, in the eschatological future, Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So there's this, this very fascinating theme of the heart in the book of Deuteronomy where the Lord first says, you don't have the heart you need. And then he tells them essentially, get this heart for yourself. And then, and then in Deuteronomy 29.4, there's a recognition. You can't do this for yourself and the Lord hasn't given it to you yet. And then there's a promise in Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6 that basically says, um, the Lord is going to give you the heart you need. So I would say that, that Deuteronomy is bearing witness to human inability. They don't have the heart they need and they can't get that heart for themselves. Now, so there, there's that theme. And when we come back after uh, this short break, um, I guess you can make the break as long as you want it to be, but when, when we come back in the next session, we will uh, see that there's a parallel theme that, that, that sheds light on the nature of the inability that we're dealing with. So we'll come back uh, in the next session and look more closely at that parallel theme in Deuteronomy.